So check that out, man. That's that's the that's the volcano eruption. Kia ora, I'm Sarah Robson, and today on The Detail... Oh no, can you guys hear that? Oh my gosh, it's shaking the island. There it goes. Oh, it's four months since the eruption of the Hunga Tonga Hunga Hapai volcano. Jaw-dropping images of an extraordinarily powerful and now deadly volcano erupting in the Pacific Ocean. The world has seen and felt the shockwaves of a massive underwater volcano on the doorstep of the Pacific island of Tonga. It's triggered a tsunami that's engulfed the island nation, waves reaching as far as Australia and Alaska. Tonight, there are reports Tonga is struggling with toxic air and contaminated water. Communications are crippled. The island where the volcano was is now submerged. The eruption lasted eight minutes and sent cloud and ash 20 kilometres into the air. It blanketed Tonga. The sonic boom was so loud it could be heard 2,300 kilometres away in New Zealand and over 9,700 kilometres away in Alaska. What do we know now about what happened and how has the science changed? Like all good theories, you know, it's great to keep onto them for a while and then it's great to throw them away too when you get a better one. Professor Shane Cronin is a volcanologist at the University of Auckland. He's going to tell us what experts have discovered about what was going on deep beneath the underwater volcano and how it produced such a massive eruption. But first, he takes me back to that day, January the 15th. Yeah, I was in Auckland. Uh, it was a warm day, and I got this news from Tonga that Honga had, had a large eruption. And so I rushed back to my sort of home office and opened up uh, all the files, contacted Taniela here in Tonga. Uh, I you know, looked for all of the information I could find, um, and it looked like a very big eruption. And then all of a sudden, all the links to Tonga sort of broke down, so I had no local information. Um, just what we were getting through in terms of some of the satellite information about the size of the event. So I kind of lived it while sitting comfortably in my desk in Auckland, really. And how quickly were you able to pull together some of that information? How soon did you realise that this was a massive eruption? On that evening, I knew it was a massive eruption. And um, so I stayed up most of the night, actually, uh, tracking data from various sources around the world. So various uh, so things like Met Service satellites and various other pieces of information about the shock waves and so on, and looking at the reports around the world and uh, talking to colleagues. And um, so by kind of the middle of the night, I started writing a kind of explainer about it, um, just because there were so many questions about what was going on in that volcano. And I knew the volcano very well. So, um, yeah, it was something like 2 o'clock in the morning. I was busy beavering away on writing the first sort of article on, you know, what was going on um, in Hunga. Shane's work has taken him all across the Pacific, and Hunga Tonga Hunga Hapai is one of several volcanoes he's studied over the years. And so I've looked at the volcanic ash layers that are deposited on all the inhabited islands um, that mainly lie east of the volcanoes. And so I've looked at those and did radiocarbon dating and things like that. So that's looking in lakes and swamps and doing some unglamorous work where you're drilling cores in these various places to get the layers of ash and then the layers of um, material that you can use radiocarbon methods to 
to date. And then this more slightly more glamorous field work was then chartering yachts and chartering boats and then heading off to the to the volcanoes that actually source these volcanic ash layers. Uh, and then usually a typical trip would involve me and a few students and uh, we'd, we'd charter a boat and head off to an island and then get dumped on there and we'd spend a week or so camping uh, because these volcanoes are uninhabited. So we'd be camping amongst all of the seabirds and watching the whales go by and various other things and, um, and basically clambering around through the bush trying to find uh, evidence for you know the most recent activity and again samples for doing chemical analysis on plus also samples for doing age uh, dating on so that way we can match the volcanic source to the volcanic ashes uh, on on the eastern islands so you've camped on hunger yes so the hunger trip was um the end of 2015 um, and we all went onto the island and camped there for I think we only stayed for four nights on the island. And then uh, during that time, we sort of took samples and went all over the newly formed volcano and also um, mapped all of the seafloor around that volcano uh, using a swath mapping system. So a system that sort of goes below a boat and basically maps a, a path of, of the seafloor below the boat. And so you drive along the boat like mowing the lawns and, and you map the seafloor. So all of this presumably would have been playing through your mind as you were piecing together from your home in Auckland in the early hours um, of the morning back in January, what had happened when it blew this time around? Yeah, so I was running through a a bunch of different scenarios in my mind and also um, I was in quite close contact with a few uh, key colleagues and we were trying to play out different scenarios as, as to what caused such a very large event. And it was pretty clear quite early on that the plume was extremely high. And it was pretty clear early on that the dynamics of this explosion were something quite unique. So we've since shown by several different methods that this is by far the most explosive eruption that we've seen uh, in the last 30 or even 50 years. Shane and other volcanologists around the world came up with some working theories about what had caused such a huge blast we really needed a mechanism that produced this very large explosion, not all that much ash as far as we could tell. And um, we need this highly explosive mechanism to be happening extremely quickly. So we were looking at ways in which we could get the hot magma and water to interact. But to make it interact in such an explosive way, we need a very, very large amount of magma to contact with the water. Um, so it's it's not so just a matter of, oh, well, we've got some water, or we've got some magma, automatically it'll be a boom. We actually needed magma with a potential to explosively erupt in the first place, and a huge amount of it, and the seawater uh, for it to interact with. And so to get that to happen, it's not that easy. So our first theory, which we carried on Um, sort of holding on to probably for a couple of months actually was that there was a collapse of the sides of the volcano like the sort of Mount St Helens style collapse so you imagine this is a submarine mountain and you imagine the side of that submarine mountain sliding off like a massive big landslide and so that mechanism would allow um, deep magma buried below rock to be suddenly exposed 
to, to the uh, ocean. And so then we'd have a very large explosion. There is, of course, only so much you can do from your desk at home in Auckland. In the aftermath of the eruption, Tongan authorities were swamped with requests from scientists all around the world for information, data, research permits. When Shane Cronin offered to lend a hand, it was enthusiastically taken up. How soon can you get here, they asked. Two weeks later, after sailing out to the volcano and seeing it for himself... Unfortunately, it sounds quite good, but we had to chuck that mechanism away. I went out onto the caldera with a smaller boat that had a 300-metre deep sonar system, and we were charting out accesses around the edges of the volcano, and we saw that the rim of the top of the crater or the top of the caldera, let's say the top of the volcano, if you imagine it's got a rim all the way around it that we measured back in 2015. Well, every place we went to that rim on the small boat, uh, we could still see it there. So we started being suspicious as to whether the volcano was still intact. Then the second piece of information came um, when I sailed across the top of the caldera in a Tongan Navy ship. And so we, uh, we went north to south, straight over the middle of the caldera. And we saw that the rim of the caldera was still there, both in the north and south. And we'd already checked it with a small boat to the east. And then the middle of the caldera was incredibly deep, much deeper than I ever anticipated it would be. So the middle of the caldera was previously about 140, 150 metres deep. And we were measuring depths well over 850 metres and going off the range of the sonar. So all of a sudden, we had to start thinking about, hey, this is not anything to do with the flank collapse because the flanks appear to be still there. Um, And instead, it has something to do with this caldera, that the caldera has suddenly become very, very deep. So the first theory, that of a Mount St. Helens-style collapse, was wrong. What's the new theory? We've got a submarine volcano. You just sort of picture something like a big version of Narahoe on the bottom of the ocean. Um, And the top part of Narahoe is actually quite a narrow little area with a crater in the middle. So this particular volcano, Hunga, actually has a very large uh, crater on the top of it. So it's a, it's a cone like Narahoe, but the top of it, you know, actually covers a very large area, about five kilometres in, in diameter, actually. Uh, so in the central part of that big area is this basin, which we call a caldera. So we think that the beginning of the eruption was basically a normal eruption. So magma rises up, gas comes out, it expands, forms this foam and produces a normal eruption column. But something then went on to turbocharge this. So this initial eruption was bringing the magma up close to the surface. So it's residing at about five kilometers depth. The initial explosive eruption draws it up from that five kilometers, draws it up into the shallow part of the volcano. And now we're starting to get into this danger zone. And then what's happening is because there's magma erupting out the top, the shallow part of the volcano starts to collapse in on itself. This is this caldera process beginning to work. So if you like the lid or the top of this caldera starts to fracture as it's collapsing down. So it's you're emptying out the caldera and the part of the lid of the caldera is collapsing down and it's fracturing. 
And this fracturing allows the seawater to get in. And hello, we've already brought up that magma from five kilometers depth suddenly to the shallow depths. And we're dropping water in on top of it. And we've got the perfect conditions to create our very, very large explosion. And of course, the biggest eruption we've seen in 30, perhaps 50 years. Exactly. So um, it's a fairly unique set of circumstances in terms of, of, of having both magma there that's ready to erupt, having that sea level there of a certain amount of sea um, water, you know, not having too much, not too deep. And that sort of process where the initial eruption that was driven, let's say, by normal volcanic processes, by normal volcanic gas expansion, um, was actually able to bring a lot of deeper magma close to the surface. That's the first step. And that second step is when the caldera begins to, to sink down, it sinks down not like a nice, smooth uh, surface. It actually starts to break up into chunks. And so that means that there are cracks and then there's plenty of opportunity for seawater to get in in many, many different places around this kind of very large area. And uh, that means we've got our perfect recipe for a large amount of magma and a large amount of water to interact all at once. So um, all of this kind of complex processing actually took place within minutes. So we think the eruption began, um, you know, with a standard eruption process. And 15 minutes later, it started getting much bigger. And this is when we think the deep magma from five kilometers below the surface suddenly reached the shallow levels. So this meant the eruption sort of became really big and started pushing the eruption plume up to about 25 kilometers high. And then the cracking started in the top part of the caldera. The water got in and away it went for the very large explosion about 10 minutes later. So we're talking about some pretty momentous things happening within half an hour at the beginning of this eruption. And then everything from there was exhausting the magma over the next uh, few hours. And then there were a series of small sputtering uh, explosions as things calmed down maybe some trapping of gas, explosion again, calm down, trapping of gas, explosion again. And then after about 11 hours, it was all over. But that first half an hour was where all the action happened. Breaking news, a tsunami is hitting Tonga right now after more severe volcanic activity there. Waves nearly a metre high flooded the capital. Other videos show people running for higher ground. This woman is in a church in the village of Patanata. She's talking to friends on her phone. They tell her to leave. I can't go, she says. The water's too high outside. The church is right on the beach, and more waves wash inside as she records. Whilst uh, we've been talking exclusively about the volcano and what the you know what drove that volcanic eruption, a lot of what I've been doing has actually been uh, collecting information. Uh, for future uh, better tsunami hazard models and tsunami run-up models. So I'm not the one that's doing the modelling or the, the hazard assessment, but I'm uh, you know, coordinating the team here to collect the type of information that they need for the modelling and, uh, and hazard assessments for the tsunami. So the tsunami was by far away the most dangerous and deadly part of this eruption. The ash wall uh, has been problematic, but not life-threatening. The tsunami was just 
horrendous. The, uh, the impacts from the tsunami were quite out of this world. I mean, when you go along the western coast of Tongatapu, where there were um, a dozen resorts completely wiped off the face of the earth, uh, everything stripped, most trees stripped. Um, uh, you walk along there now, uh, you know, three and a half, four months after the event, and you, you see uh, long stretches of beach and some nice uh, grass and regrowing small vegetation, and it looks quite idyllic. But um, someone from Tonga that goes out to that site, they just don't even recognize the landscape anymore. The trees have gone, the buildings have gone, there's no landmarks, people can't even tell where they are. It's uh, horrendous, the change. Um, and that's the same also for some of the other islands uh, up in the Harpai group. Um, absolutely spectacular changes that have been caused by the tsunami wave. The wave washing up over 18 meter high uh, bluffs, um, stripping soils, destroying trees and all that kind of thing. We've got a blind spot when it comes to both the volcanoes of the Southwest Pacific and their impact on not only New Zealand, but on their impact on the region and on the world. And we've also got a blind spot when it comes to some of the actual theory we have about how these submarine volcanoes work in terms of producing explosive eruptions, but just how they produce tsunami. So there wasn't a tsunami warning issued by the official tsunami warning agency for this event. And the main reason is that the mechanisms that are typically used to to generate tsunami models are all about tectonic motion of the sea floor. Uh, so, you know, imagine a part of the sea floor lifting up or dropping down, uh, the water above then reacts, radiates outwards as a wave. Now, in the case of a volcano, the, the traditional theory is that the volcanoes produce tsunami, but they're all very small because the area affected is small. So we don't have a large area affected by a long fault line, but just a little tiny little point in the middle of the ocean. Now this one produced such a large and destructive tsunami has caused everyone to take another look at this, this theory. And so all of this information we're collecting uh, is really going into an international effort to you know, come up with some new models for tsunami generation from volcanoes that can go into sort of life safety measures around the world. So it's fair to say that uh, there's a large number of American, Japanese, New Zealand, Australian uh, researchers that are really, really uh, focusing on this. This long period of, of in-country work, it reminds me of the sort of work I used to do back in my early career. And um, what tends to happen is scientists come into countries like Tonga and, um, you know, push to gather lots of information or, or let's say research vessels come in and, um, you know, gather a lot of information. Um, and then what tends to happen is that information is processed, it enters the scientific literature. A very little of that base knowledge uh, goes back to the country. So there might be some experiences for the people there, but uh, you know, basically by putting things into the scientific literature, the trickle back effect is almost zero. So um, you know, there needs to be a lot more effort going into when science is brought to countries like Tonga or Samoa or Vanuatu or whatever, in whatever field, um, you know, I think 
in, in terms of, I'm just speaking for the geosciences, I'm sure that other fields such as the medical fields are much, much better at this. But in terms of the geosciences, there, are there is a tendency for, you know, coming in, collecting a lot of information, uh, doing some amazing science, and then maybe communicating that science or maybe involving a few of the local people as, as co-authors. But often that, that is kind of relatively superficial. Um, and so spending actual real time helping collect the information with the local people and um, helping them be part of that whole processing and understanding of that information, I think will have a lasting, a more lasting impact. That's it for today. I'm Sarah Robson. The Detail is public interest journalism funded through NZ On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. Our associate producer is Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Shane Cronin. Matewa. Wa.